0: Welcome to New Books in Pop Culture. This is Gail Fashionbauer Cooper. I am the author of two pop culture books, The Totally Sweet 90s and Whatever Happened to Pudding Pops, The Lost Toys, Taste and Trends of the 70s and 80s. And today I'm talking with Christopher Pizzino. He is the author of Arresting Development: Comics at the Boundaries of Literature. Welcome, Chris.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Gail.
0: Thanks for joining me. Um, now, i love comics i just went to my first comic con with my young daughter this past weekend have they always been of interest to you
1: you know when i was a child i fell into them where they fell on me without my having to think very much about it and then i guess you could say i was kind of a prodigal son for a while because by the time i was in high school i had stopped reading them and i picked them up the way that a lot of people pick them up by having various new kinds of comics you know longer in format um, different in story and tone. New kinds of comics pressed into my hands uh, throughout my 20s, and by my early 30s and mid-30s, I was reading them pretty regularly again. I'm, I'm really sorry that I ever walked away. I'll probably never get those years back. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's it's strange to think about how some of the first things that I remember picking up when I learned how to read comics as a kid uh, are still there in my DNA, even though for for at least a decade I wasn't reading them seriously at all.
0: Do you remember which ones you started with? Was it Superheroes or Archie or?
1: I think both Superheroes and Archie were part of the picture and lots and lots of newspaper comics, especially the Peanuts. I really loved the cartooning of Charles Schultz and yeah, still do.
0: What a talent. Yeah, he's from my hometown, St. Paul, Minnesota, and there's statues of him everywhere and everyone knows uh, the where his father had his barbershop and they lived above it and uh, he's just a, a legend in that town, but what a talent.
1: Uh, That's fantastic. Yeah. And there's a there's a lasting public monument, 50 years worth of really, really good cartooning day in and day out.
0: And it was so amazing, too, with his life. Uh, You know, he he died. Was it the night before the final comic was published in the Sunday papers? It was just like the timing was eerie.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He's somebody who definitely did what he came here to do.
0: Right for sure. Um, You want to tell us just a little bit about um, how you got into the book, why you decided to write it? You're a professor at University of Georgia, is that correct?
1: That's correct. When I started reading comics again in a more serious way from my mid-30s onward, I kept on realizing that when I would tell people what I was doing, that I was beginning to study comics, I was beginning to teach courses on comics, I began to realize that whether or not they realized I was doing it, I was often having to tell I guess you could say white lies about comics. Uh, many people would be surprised that somebody with a PhD was taking comics seriously. It's actually not that uncommon anymore, but uh, for a lot of people, it's still there. Uh, when they run into a, a comic book professor, it's still a surprise to them. But I found myself kind of relying on a very typical story that you'll see a lot in newspapers and magazines whenever the issue of comics comes up. And if you wanted to put that story in shorthand, I guess you could say it's the comics have grown up now story, or the comics aren't just for kids anymore story. And it's at least partly a true story. That is to say there are more comics for grown ups than there used to be. But that story implies that once upon a time, comics were naturally kid stuff. And then through some process of, becoming more mature or what have you, they naturally grew up and now it's naturally okay for grownups to read them. And that really is a white lie and behind it is a really sad, sad reality, namely that comics have often been read by grownups, but just were not given much cultural respect. And the, the story of the change hasn't really been a story of naturally growing up. It's really been a story of comics having to fight, you might say, to fight for recognition to fight for respect. So I guess I wrote the book because I didn't want to lie anymore, even even the sort of uh even the sort of convenient lies that say that comics grew up when in fact comics are still kind of fighting for respect even today. I wanted to get at whatever was behind that convenient story.
0: Sure. Can you tell us just a little bit about comics when you're talking about the early days? And I think we're probably talking more about books than strips, is that correct?
1: Um Let's say that comics started out in the newspaper and then they migrated over into uh, comic books after about, I'm going to be a bad historian here and say from the mid-1930s onward. So if you were a kid looking at newspapers, or an adult, for that matter, looking at newspapers in the early 20th century, the place that you would find find comics would be somewhere in the newspaper. But comics began to have their own life in book form, you know, the stapled books that we recognize as the standard comic book format. Comics began to have that form starting in the mid to late 1930s. And that was the time when the... I guess you could say the problems really began to get more severe. Comics had always been suspected as somehow bad for the masses, uh, bad for literacy, as encouraging antisocial attitudes. But all of those fears about comics and all the disapproval of comics really ramped up a lot after comic books came out. It was as if there was something about comics being freestanding, you know, outside the newspaper, off on their own, that increased the disapproval of cultural critics and others who just felt that, uh, comics were somehow, I'm going to be a little bit caricaturish about it and say that comics were the enemy of civilization.
0: <laughs> Some of the early comic books. I mean, when I think back to book form, the earliest, you know, i am thinking of like the EC and the vault of horror and those, you know, horrific looking covers that were so much pulpy campy fun, but were there ones even earlier than that, that you're thinking of that were,
1: there were some of, the, some of the earliest ones were definitely in the crime and or superhero genre, but by the mid 1940s, there was an awful lot of diversity in comics production and an awful lot of fads too, as publishers chased whatever they felt was the next big thing that was going to sell to young readers and to adult readers as well. So there were waves of crime comics. There were waves of horror comics, romance comics, uh, funny animal comics, and, it's fair to say that some of those comics were in fact something that one might not want a child to read. Uh, it's also fair to say that some of those comics were in fact offensive. Certainly they were offensive by contemporary standards, but they were offensive to many people, even at the time, uh, in their excessive violence, their sexism, their racism. I certainly wouldn't want to pretend that all of the comics of that early era are comics that I'd want my niece to read now. But, it's also, but I think it's also fair to say that However much individual comics may have offended public sensibility, it's also the case that comics were really not given a fair shot or a fair hearing, and that even the best of them, the most well-designed, the most intelligently written, were often misread, were often uh, misperceived, perhaps as being prejudicial. In fact, they were trying to to fight prejudice.
0: And do you believe that those stereotypes came up so early because of how the comics looked or where they were sold or...?
1: (laughs) You know, I wish I still had a complete answer to the question of why comics became, I guess you could say, a scapegoat. It seemed to happen so naturally, so naturally, a number of cultural critics, children's authors and others turned against comics and found them to be the enemy. That it almost seems now, uh, looking back, as if it was a foregone conclusion. And I'm still trying to seek out all of the, the causes, the why. Sometimes all I can really see is just the how, and by the early 1950s, -1950s, mid-1950s, the how was really uh, legal as well as cultural. There was a congressional hearing held in 1954 that basically put comics on trial for juvenile delinquency, and by that point, uh, it was pretty much a foregone conclusion that comics were going to take the heat for an awful lot of public concern about juvenile misbehavior.
0: Sure. And then, so this was in the 50s, and did that kind of linger on for quite a while, would you say?
1: Here's where I think I differ from from some other critics. A lot of critics would want to say that the the energy of that time didn't linger for long and that any problems that comics have had since have been fairly minor and have sort of been their own fault, have been the fault of comics publishers. But what I see when I look at the way educators talk about comics or even when I look at the way some critics talk about comics today, what I see is that while things are definitely far better for comics than they were in 1954, those bad times still echo pretty loudly today. And I would say that even now, there are a fair number of educators who really don't think of comics as that great an idea for children. They will allow them, often for what they call uh, reluctant readers, you know, readers who won't read anything else. But at the end of the day, I still wonder if comics are quite as much on their feet as a lot of people would claim, so I see that I see plenty of echoes from the past to now, and I see those echoes in comics themselves, which is what I wrote my book about. but uh, I think it's fair to say that some critics basically think the problem is over, and some critics don't and i'm I'm definitely in the latter camp
0: and in your book, you have four different artist profiles that we're going to talk about briefly if we can. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about why you chose to do your book that way, why those four were? Were so special that they uh, each get a big chapter,
1: absolutely. I wanted to show that comics creators today still really think about this sad, unfortunate history that we've been discussing just now. I wanted to show that they know some of that history firsthand well, I'm sorry, secondhand none of them were one of the ones I discussed were alive in nineteen fifty four but they they know some of that history through study or through talking with other comics creators or both, and they themselves know what it is to have to fight for an audience or to be considered somehow lesser as a creator because they're comics creators, because they're cartoonists instead of being authors or filmmakers. So I wanted to pick four creators who are pretty different from each other, who none of whom were part of the same crowd, none of whom were part of any uh, movement or set or subculture, just so that I could show that the problem that I'm talking about isn't just a problem for one particular uh, clique, or arena of comics creators, but that it touches many different kinds of creators. So we have Frank Miller, who really made his name working in mainstream superhero comics. And I wanted to look at how Miller talks about the unfortunate history of comics and the way that he sees that history still affecting what he was doing in the 1980s.
0: Right. Let's do just uh, a little bio of him. He did Sin City, Dark Knight Returns, um, created Electra, correct, for Daredevil.
1: That's correct. Those who are watching the Marvel shows on TV may see uh, Electra by Frank Miller there at the end of the credits. Uh, Miller was very much one of the first voices from within mainstream comics who was clearly trying very consciously to challenge the old stereotypes to tell new kinds of stories that were definitely stories for adults and not for children and to win both more creative freedom for himself. As well as more respect for comics as a whole. And his book, Dark Knight Returns, was one of the sort of breakout books of the 1980s that made people say, oh, this is a kind of comic that I didn't know existed. This is a kind of comic for grown-ups. Again, those kinds of comics had always been around, but Miller was one of the people who really pushed to make that kind of comic more visible. So I wanted a voice like that, a voice from the mainstream, working inside of corporate comics, working on a comic uh, that he couldn't ever own himself because DC Comics owns Batman and uh, he can't. And then I wanted some other uh, creators who were working quite differently, who didn't have an experience anything like Miller's, but just to show that... No matter, what you're, no matter what you're doing as a comics creator, whether you're working for Marvel or whether you're working on your own, whether you're making an autobiographical comic or whether you're working in a, a traditional comics like the way that uh, Charles Burns works in horror, I wanted to show that wherever you are in the comics universe, you are still being touched or affected by this unfortunate history that we've been talking about.
0: Sure, sure and you mentioned miller kind of mixed a little bit of film noir some manga influence in there and then you you bring up pop art quite a bit when it uh, relates to his work
1: absolutely i wanted to show that i wanted to show that what it means to be a pop art as a comics creator is a lot different than what it means to be pop art when you're andy warhol i'm not sure if that move in the book worked as well as i wanted it to work but i wanted to try to show that if you're a museum artist it's one thing to make fun of your work or to to turn it in the direction that Andy Warhol turned his work, to make it pop, to bring it into contact with commercial culture, you know, with Campbell's soup and so forth. But that that works very differently if you're a comics creator, because uh, everybody already thinks you're pop if you're a comics creator. Everybody already thinks that your work is disposable. So I just wanted to, I wanted to have pop art in the conversation to show that, being an Andy Warhol and being a Frank Miller are two very different things.
0: And then you also talk about one of my favorites, with his, which is Allison Bechtel. She, of course, did Dykes to Watch Out for. And then um, a lot of people know her more from Fun Home about her her own growing up with a closeted dad and who ran a funeral. A <coughs> musical.
1: Yeah, a very successful musical. I was delighted to see that that happened. It was something I would never have predicted, but I think it works quite well as a musical. That, to me, was the, mo- the chapter that was the most fun to write because when I was working on the book, uh, a number of people would ask me what creators I was talking about. And when I said Frank Miller, they would say, oh, yes, well, Frank Miller is definitely one of those people who has, uh, you know, an angry attitude about the status of comics and he remembers the bad old days in the 50s. Or if I mentioned Charles Burns, they would say, oh, yes, Charles Burns, he loves those old 50s horror comics. But whenever I would say that I was going to write about Alison Bechtel, a number of people would say, Well, Bechtel's not like that. She doesn't, she doesn't have any attitude about being a comics creator. You know, her work is full of references to great works of literature. So the Bechtel chapter was about showing that Alison Bechdel is a lot more like Frank Miller than people think. She's a lot more like Charles Burns than people think. She too has uh, an affinity for those uh, rebellious, supposedly childlike aspects of comics. She too cares about comic status. She too makes Mad Magazine style jokes. So um, that was the most fun chapter to write just because I wanted to kind of, I wanted to take Alison Bechtel back from the people who think that she's all about Henry James and Virginia Woolf and show that she's also very much about Charles Adams and about Mad Magazine.
0: Right. You mentioned her love for Mad Magazine, for the EC horror comics, for Charles Adams, which was not unlike her home with the kind of Victorian style furniture of a funeral home, funeral director's home and, and all those kind of spooky things that went on in the Adams family.
1: So this is some of my favorite parts of Fun Home are the parts where she makes direct comparisons between the Addams family and her own family. That you know, as a kid, she didn't realize that the Addams family was supposed to be ironic fun. She looked at it and thought it was a, a record of her own life. Um
0: Yeah, she's wonderful. I mean, she reminds me, too, a little bit of Charles Schultz, because in the way that he was always reflected in Charlie Brown's kind of fear and anxiety, um, you know, when she writes Mo in uh, Dykes to Watch Out For, looks just like her, seems to have a lot of the anxieties that she seems to express she has. It's like a very thinly veiled version of the cartoonist living on in in the strip.
1: Absolutely. I really like the way that she puts herself forward. I've also thought it was hilarious that it took her so long to admit that. She said that for years she insisted that she and Mo did not look anything alike. But (laughs) I guess eventually after hundreds of people kept telling her she was mistaken, she began to see the resemblance.
0: For sure. And some people who may not know her work may know her from the Bechtel test. Do you want to talk about that or should I describe that?
1: Absolutely. You know, it's amazing to me how many of my students know what that test is, even if they have no idea who Alison Bechtel is. Uh, I forget in what Dykes to Watch Out For's trip this, this happens, but I think it's a conversation between Moe and Lois. Is that right?
0: Oh, Lois from Mad Women Books? Probably.
1: Yeah, I think Moe and Lois are talking, and they're talking about a standard that they use, a kind of measuring stick for whether or not they'll see a film. And it has to have the following characteristics. You can stop me if I'm getting any of this wrong. It has to have at least two women in it, and they have to have a conversation with each other. And that conversation has to be, at least on one occasion, it has to be a conversation about something other than a man.
0: And I think both women have to have their own names. It can't just be like, they have to have character names so you know who they are. They're actual characters, not just passing woman who walks by and says something or.
1: Right, right. Or
0: in the scene for, yeah. And it's surprising how many movies fail the Bechtel test.
1: It is. It's actually a fun game to play with students because I will, they will start mentioning films that their certain pass and it turns out that the Godfather doesn't pass because while named characters who are women do talk to each other, they only talk about the men in film. Uh,
0: So oh, Ellison is fantastic, and your next one, you go on to Charles Burns. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about his background? Uh, Black Hole was fascinating for me because he set it in the Seattle suburbs. I live in Seattle now, and boy, did he—he he nailed it. He nailed the way things looked. He nailed nailed the places. It's just the setting is perfect.
1: That's really good to know. You know, I haven't spent much time in the Seattle suburbs, but I'll definitely take your word for it. Burns was interesting to me because he grew up at a time when a lot of those great comics of the fifties that were basically censored out of existence were still hanging around, but you had to go and look for them. You only had to seek them out. And he was very aware that in seeking them out, he was seeking a kind of comic that a lot of people of his parents' generation would not approve of. In fact, uh, uh, comics that were denied to some of, uh, to some of his peers, comics that his, uh, his friends' parents wouldn't let them look at. And what he saw in these comics, at least in his eyes, was really valuable satire that tried to say something about the kind of repressed white picket fence uh, vision of 1950s America that clamped down on people of uh, the post-war era. And in a way, one might say prompted them to rebel. You might say the 50s produced the 60s, definitely in, in Burns' view. And so I wanted, to, I wanted to look at Burns because I wanted to look at somebody who wasn't there at the time when comics were being censored, but who definitely was interested in going back to that history and trying to explore what it says about comics, what he could make out of those supposedly worthless, uh, repressed or suppressed old comics. I was really interested in Burns as somebody who yeah, wasn't alive at the time, but who was nonetheless def- definitely felt like he was part of that history of comics being pushed to the margins, being silenced and so forth.
0: And boy, did he have some uh, run-ins with some famous names. You mentioned in there, I think, that Art Spiegelman tried to help him get work for Playboy, but Burns could just never get, like, he couldn't get into Hugh Hefner's mind. He he couldn't sugarcoat the sexism the way that the Playboy jokes or, you know, their, their articles did.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny, uh, this, this is always a surprise to me, but Hugh Hefner is actually apparently a really good editor of cartoons, and a fair number of yeah, ambitious cartoonists have said that he was a pleasure to work with, but Burns is such a, a had such a singular vision that he just could not compromise enough to give Hugh Hefner what he wanted. So, yeah, he was unable to uh, he was unable to meet the sexism of Playboy halfway and I don't, any of the uh, satire he produced was was palatable to Playboy readers
0: and Black Hole, which is, if people haven't read it, they should pick it up, but it's kind of about a, a plague that, that and how teenagers react to it. it. You know, you could compare it to AIDS, you could compare it to many, many things, but um, it strikes me as this could be the kind of thing that, like, it could be a Stranger Things miniseries on Netflix or Hulu these days. When it came out, it was kind of ahead of its time. But now when you read it, you say, it was kind of leading us to where these, these great shows and miniseries are, are kind of trying to go.
1: I think that's exactly right. And, you know, part of the lineage there, I I haven't got this thought all worked out, but part of the lineage there is that when shows like Stranger Things explore the 1980s, I think in their own way, they're trying to get back to or to think thoughts about the 1950s. Uh, Those of us who are alive in the 80s know that the 80s were obsessed with 1950s pop culture. Uh, I don't know about you, but I remember little bits of... Uh, 50s Americana constantly being sold to baby boomers on television, Elvis's greatest hits, and so on and so forth. And the Reagan era was diffused with references back to the era of the 50s. And so, yeah, I think you're right. I think Burns is kind of leading the way in that he wants to go back to those 1950s horror comics and pull out of them this resistance to conformity and pull out of them this satire about... Um, juvenile delinquents and the satire about people who were left behind or pushed out either because of unpopularity or unattractiveness or poverty or homelessness. Yeah. I think, I think Burns was leading the way in trying to reach back and get a different vision of the, get, get a different vision of the, of the, of the, of the fifties a you know, more satirical vision that would have something political to say by, by grabbing onto parts of fifties pop culture that had been left out or left behind.
0: And last but not least, you do Gilbert Hernandez, which I immediately think Love and Rockets and his brother Jaime. Uh, You picked Gilbert. Why did you pick him?
1: I think I picked Gilbert because I would like to think of something very adult and grown up to say here, but given the thesis of my own book, I think I picked him partly because of the two of them, he is the one who's more deliberately self-consciously juvenile and childish. Uh, He's the one who inserts more violence into his work. He's the one whose attitudes are more kind of self-consciously delinquent and antisocial. He's the one who pushes the boundaries more, who's done more to challenge his own readers and to challenge people's ideas of what comics are. And of the two of them, I think he's the one who's the more interested in comics history. He's the one who's more interested in what's happened to comics and what might happen to them now.
0: And for those who aren't really familiar with the brothers, do you want to talk a little bit about their uh, uh, work, Love and Rockets or anything else you want to just give us sure. of?
1: Thinking about the question you asked earlier, why these four, I realize, I realized don't think I realized it at the time. I picked a creator who was working in the mainstream on something that he did not own, Batman. That's Frank Miller. I picked somebody who was definitely working in a particular tradition from the past, and that's Charles Burns working in horror comics. I picked someone who was telling their own life story as a memoir and you know, drawing from their own experience. That's Alison Bechtel. And then I picked somebody who was... Basically, building their own story world that really wasn't based on anybody else's, and that's Gilbert Hernandez. Both Gilbert and Jaime, uh, two brothers, published together, but they basically keep their two story worlds separate. And in both of them, they've built this very, very large cast of characters that now extends over decades and multiple generations. And it's a story world that allows for all different kinds of stories. Some are very uh, intimate and delicate, some are you know very broadly satirical and funny, some are tragic and violent, uh some are very sexy, well, practically all of them are very sexy one way or another but uh yeah gilbert is the is the one of the four I examined who brings comics history, who brings that bad old history I was talking about basically into a into a story world that he made up himself um that is the most wholly original of the four, I think.
0: Right. And it's interesting that their mother was a fan of comics from the 40s. I I don't know that I've read of someone getting that interest from their mother, maybe from their father or an older brother. But it's kind of neat that their mom was a fan.
1: It is really interesting. And I think it speaks a lot to two qualities of Gilbert's work that I was really drawn to. One is just how much he cares about making sure that his female characters are three-dimensional people who don't follow a stereotype who don't do what's expected who have really vivid interesting lives that are specific and memorable and then the other quality of his is that like all like all the creators I'm looking at He just cares a lot about what's happened to comics, about sort of the misfortunes that comics have been through. And I don't think it's an accident that one of his protagonists, Luba, learns to read as a kid by reading comics. I mean, they're terrible comics. They're these awful racist caricature comics. But still, that's how she learns to read. And I find it interesting that he's been so interested in making a world full of memorable women and that that world is a world where they read and engage with comics on a pretty regular basis.
0: And to drag an artist like Frida Kahlo into kids' minds where they might have never seen her work, seen her picture, heard that name before. It's it's quite an achievement there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. When you look at the way that Gilbert Hernandez grew up with his mom, watching art films on TV, not even knowing what they were really, never having heard of Ingmar Bergman, but nonetheless seeing his movies. And then you think about how many comics he had in his house. And then you think about the comics he makes. I think it really is the case that he is trying to make a world where all those high, low divisions, all those ways that comics have been put down could finally be laid to rest. You know, this is a guy who's read Gabriel Garcia uh, Marquez. This is a guy who spent a lot of time looking at Frida Kahlo. And that is part of his toolbox. And then horrible old racist comics from previous decades are part of his toolbox. And pornography is part of his toolbox. And you know, uh, social satire is part of his toolbox. This is the person who wants all of culture to matter, not just certain like high or respectable things. And I, I think it was very important for me to show that complete vision. That is really not something we see very much of because, well, at least I think we still have we still have issues around cultural, let's say, cultural status or cultural hierarchy. A lot of people still would not want to think that comics could be as important as literature. And I think in Gilbert Hernandez's work, we see somebody who wants Archie style comedy and Frida Kahlo, not one or the other. And he doesn't want one to be more important than the other either.
0: And that's kind of a good uh, brain to let's talk just a little bit about the state of the art today with comics, where you where you see things going, what gives you hope or what maybe is discouraging about where comics are today?
1: You know, sometimes from day to day, and I think this is pretty typical of uh, pretty typical for comic scholars from day to day, I'll see kind of good news and bad news, sometimes one right after the other. I'll encounter a fantastic young comics creator who is making their own story world and developing their own style and gaining an audience. And they really seem free of that, bad old history, you know, in some cases, it's not even clear if they're aware of it. You know, they may be part of a new generation that really has put some of that old energy to rest, the energy that that so obsesses Miller and Bechtel and Burns and Hernandez. And then I'll turn right around and read yet another newspaper editorial that insists that comic books are kid stuff and that all these Marvel superhero movies are rotting people's brains and so on and so forth. So I think we're at a moment when some people have gotten the message that all culture counts and that you can't tell whether something is going to be good or not based on whether or not it has a superhero in it or whether or not it has pictures in it. And then there are still lots of those older voices that want to insist that some culture counts and some culture doesn't. You know.
0: (laughs) What do you hope that people take away from your book?
1: I hope that people see that comics have really drawn a lot of strength from all the bad times that they've been through. That when we look at the way Frank Miller in the eighties is still talking about the censorship of comics from the fifties. And we look at the way that Alison Bechtel, who is so sensitive and so intimate in her drawing style, that she's learned things from that magazine or the way Burns learns things from horror comics and so on. I hope that people can see that, the history of comics is important and that it really has informed some of the best work of the generation that is kind of in its prime now, the, the generation that Miller and Bechtel, Burns and Hernandez are all part of. I hope that but that history doesn't get lost or forgotten. Comics creators certainly have not forgotten it for the most part. And I hope that people can see how much Alison Bechtel actually gets more interesting to read when you know something about Mad Magazine.
0: For sure. And are you working on anything else or would you like to share what your latest project is? Do you have another book planned or?
1: I'm currently just beginning another book. That's going to be called the body of the comics reader, or at least that's the working title for now. And there's a little bit of discussion of what it's about in arresting development, but I would like to talk about the way that comics, physical comics, that is comic books, encourage your body to interact with the page the way that, the comic is designed to bring out all of these experiences, sometimes very obvious experiences of physical movement, but also all the other ways that basically comics talk to the body in ways that traditional print literature usually doesn't.
0: Well, thank you so much, Christopher Pizzino, for your time. The book is called Arresting Development, Comics at the Boundaries of Literature, and you should pick it up and check it out. Thanks so much for talking to me today. Thank you, Gail. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye.